tell me who's that right John the Revelator, tell me who's that right John the Revelator, tell me who's that right John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals Love that old-timey tune. Let's join with John in this whirlwind magical mystery tour in the book of Revelation. We're right in the heart of it where John is going to take us on a spiritual behind-the-curtains backstage pass, we might say. So join us. Revelation chapter 6 to 16. Come on in. Welcome to the Publical Channel. All we want to do is help you read your Bible better so that you have the best tool available to make the most success out of the life that you are living. And that's the way we see the Bible, read the right way, and it does nothing but encourage you and lead you in the right direction. Read the wrong way, well, just like anything, can be used for evil as much as it is meant for good. So anyhow, we are here in the book of Revelation, and so far it's been quite tame. Chapters 6 to 16, however, do get into the whirlwind of crazy, crazy imagery and all kinds of stuff. So we need to straighten this out. This time you're going to have to do a lot more reading. Normally at the Biblical Channel we would read through this stuff, but it's better if we take a fast approach through so that you can actually read it and then enjoy it because you know what's going on and how John put this thing together using his literary skills, skills that have been recognized by 99% of the church. Yes, there's always that crazy 1% that does some, wow, oh boy, uh, don't even get me started. But anyhow, there are brothers and sisters, we love them too. Um, so let's get our head on straight here by just simply starting off with prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Ah, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the rub. Delivering us from evil, that is what God, our Father who is in heaven, is all about, all about, all in on delivering us from evil. So let us open our eyes and uh, take a journey with John in Revelation chapter 6 to 16. Here we go. Um, the, the, uh, the chapters that we are going to look at do need to be situated. Let's remember where we came from. Where we came from in chapters 2 and 3 was the pains of earth as being experienced in the churches. As we proposed, the churches are in a bit of a mess. Not all the churches, but some churches are in a bit of a mess, and they are told by Jesus, by John, to get their act together because they're in it for the long haul, and they're going to have to get their act together if they're going to be of any earthly help. And then we turn the 
to chapters 4 and 5 where John gives us this very majestic look at heaven's peace and victory celebration. A lot of fist pumping going on in the heavenly realm about the lamb who was slain, the real lion who is a lamb that was slain. That is Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is the big game-changing event for all of history from heaven's point of view. And it never grows tired of celebrating that. Now we have our chapter 6 to 16, which is back to earth. And when we take a look at earth in chapter 6 to 16, it is the crazy life on earth that we are going to be looking at. However, John is also going to show us, you know, that peaceful, stable life in heaven. And so this whole thing is going to be behind the curtains, behind, you know, the stage, so to speak, of earth life, life on earth. John's going to be given a tour to the backside, and he's going to now take us with him to tell us exactly what he saw in this very spiritual journey to the spiritual side of life. So from Genesis to Revelation, there is no change of thinking, and that is that God actually gives us what we want. That's probably the worst news that we could ever hear. What we seem to want is to live our life our own way without God. And we make a mess of the world, we make a mess of our society, even ourselves, and God is forever showing us the way back. God is for us, he is not against us, but the, the rebellion, God will not let that go on forever. So there's, um, there's, there's four keys, I think, before heading into chapter 6 to 16 that will help us a lot. Number one, it is coded and it is paralleled. When I say the book of Revelation in chapter 6 to 16 is coded, what I'm talking about here is that it gives us a language, it gives people here on earth a language system that is trying to cope with a world that is oftentimes just absolutely off the hook and seemingly loco, loco. Um, it's coded to give us some sort of inside talk you know, that seems like it's sticking it to the man, but it's just sticking it to this world's craziness so that we don't get caught up and get in trouble. Remember that there are governments on earth that can't stand it when people criticize the government, criticize the religion, criticize anything, um, and those governments oftentimes persecute people, etc. So the coding in this you know, 6 to 16, is, is working to give us that kind of inside language. Most of the coding comes from Old Testament talk, but some of the coding is just, it's just bizarre imagery that we get the picture behind it. Um, we don't need a lot of help with that. Um, and so this functions very much like the language of Cockney in England, when the working class feels like the government is oppressing it. It develops its own little language system so it, it can stick it to the man, so to speak. Um, it's also, you know, the, the language of like hip hop culture um, that once again feels like it's being oppressed by the, you know, the world at large. So it develops its own language system. If you're on the inside, you know what this language means. If you're on the outside, you have no clue what it means. Very similar to the Let's Go Brandon today. 
if you have ears to hear, I'll let you hear that on your own. It's also paralleled. So when I say paralleled, it, it, what that means is that it's a look behind the curtain of history and not just our history, but all history, history that's even future history. What it's really looking at here is a parallel of all generations um, activity throughout time and space. And so this is a spiritual reality of the earthly reality that we all experienced. Number two, uh, the, these chapters six to 16 are organized on a vision, not on time. It's, it's, it's given to us as a way to look at human history, past, present, and future from different angles and different points of view. But the main message in chapter 6 to 16 is that the end is not yet. Just like Jesus had said, the end is not yet, which took the apostles by surprise, knowing that he was the Christ, that it was not the end yet. It is still not the end yet. And so this, you know, this scenery that John paints for us in chapter 6 to 16 are four different looks at the very craziness of this world. But yet it also is a look at the stability of heaven, the stability of God. And, and it's, it's time that makes it a very frustrating message. If you, if you try to organize this material on time, then it's a complete letdown for every generation because everybody keeps missing it. And when I say time makes it a frustrating message, that means that, you know, if the original audience read it from a time perspective, then they would have been let down that none of this stuff seemed to happen. Um, and every generation that tries to make this into a time sequence is eventually let down by the fact that none of it seems to come to fruition. And so that's what happens, you know, when people try predicting the end of the world, they're reading the book of Revelation like it's some sort of time sequence and we can do some sort of secret decoder ring to figure out the events so that we can know when the end was. No, 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 no. Big no, no. Because number one, the literary structure that John gives us does not let us use it from a time reference. Only a vision reference. And there are four different visions that John is going to give us. And each one of them represents a different part of, of the way life is experienced. And there's a lot of overlapping material in this very gregacious, you know, uh, presentation of the spiritual reality behind reality. But make no mistake, what John is giving us is for every generation to not be frustrated by, but to be relieved by, to give us a language system of, of pointing at the world and saying, yes, this is the craziness of this world. The book of Revelation gives us this, this language system of, of being able to have a little bit of fun and, and, and point out like, oh man, that's, that's just another beast that we find in Revelation. Oh man, seems like the Antichrist is here. So oh, seems like the mark of the beast, that kind of thing. It's meant to be helpful for us to keep us on track with knowing that God in heaven is very stable, but the earth at large is very unstable. 
Number three, gospel, gospel, gospel. The greatest battle that ever takes place in the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not some future event. It's the past event. Um, even when John cracks open the heavenly vision in chapter four and five, it's a vision of celebration of the cross of Jesus Christ. That celebration of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is still the celebration that's going on in the heavenly realm. It has not stopped. God does not get tired of celebrating the magnificent meaning behind Jesus' death and his resurrection, which is all about Jesus conquering death, now giving life, and will return to judge to clean up the mess but the Revelator, John the Revelator, who's that writing? John the Revelator gives us no hints on time. No hints on time. But that's not surprising because Jesus gave us no hints on time other than not yet and other than nobody knows. So anyhow, number four that might help us out here is that God wins. The whole point of these narratives, the whole point of this horror story or this fun-loving kind of look at the spiritual reality behind reality is to give you this immense feeling that you are on the right side, that you don't have to worry. Lighten up, have a laugh. This language system that John gives us, you know, in this spiritual journey is meant to lighten our load, not to, you know, make our load even heavier. So, like I said, it gives us, you know, kind of an insider's language, you know, like, let's go, Brandon, um, you know, so that nobody really knows what we're talking about. And we get to have a little bit of a laugh about what we're frustrated by, etc. So anyhow, let's just dive right into this. And that is chapter six and seven. So, well, let me just say this. There are there are four different uh, pieces to this puzzle in six to 16. There are four groups of sevens. There are the seven seals, you know, and then there are the uh, seven trumpets, and then there are the seven signs, and then there are the seven bowls, and, or, you know, if you might want to call it the seven plagues, uh, that's fine too. But um, in chapter six, verse, you know, six and seven, these seven seals paint the picture of tyranny as they are opened up. And then there's a pattern behind each one of these sections that, you know, there is going to be this very crazy, you know, uh, set of images um, followed up by a refusal to repent, followed up by good news. And this pattern helps us to see that this is, this is the same history being looked at four different ways. So the first, uh, uh, the seven seals um, reveals a tyranny. The seven trumps, trumpets reveal, a chaos, reveal chaos. The seven signs reveal persecution and the seven bowls reveal destruction. So anyhow, back to chapter six and seven. When the seven seals are opened, we see 
four horsemen riding out. And these four horsemen, one's white, which represents rulers. One is red, which represents wars and riots. One's black that represents the economy and law and injustice. One is pale, which represents death and deprivation and disease and that kind of thing. All of that is spelled out for us in chapter six. But the thing to notice is that these four horsemen are riding in history 2,000 years ago, and they've been riding in every generation. It's up to us to see these four horsemen and how they create, you know, an instability to this world, not a stability to these to the world. And these four horsemen are characteristic of all generations and what's going on in all generations. It's meant to see recurringly all the time. The, but the main message is that despite the um, the tyrannies, despite the tyrannies, we find a refusal of repentance. Uh, just an absolute refusal of repentance. So chapter 6, verse 15 to 17 is, is a great little picture of how these tyrants of horses, you know, create such bad situations, but people still don't repent. And they sadly ask the rocks to fall on top of them and to kill them rather than asking God to save them. And chapter seven turns, you know, the, the, the seals into good news because in chapter seven, we hear after this, I looked and I beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So, so these seven seals and these tyrannical, you know, chaotic rulers, you know, that, that, that definitely torment every generation in some part of the world is compared to, in chapter 7, that all is well in heaven. Despite the craziness of this world, all is well in heaven and that there are unimaginably large numbers of people on God's side. So the numbers, you know, the, the 144,000 simply represents the 12 representative tribes of Israel, the 12 representative apostles now, you know, of Jesus Christ. Multiply that together, you get 144. Multiply that by a thousand, which is the Bible's code always for a very unimaginably large number. And the number 144,000 just simply represents that all is well in heaven and people are responding to the gospel. There are people on earth and in heaven who are responding correctly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, an unimaginably large number. That's what it says in in chapter 7, once you get down through the, the listing of the 144,000 in the 12 tribes, the author John tells you that this is an unbelievably large number of people. They cannot be counted. And that's, a, that's all, all that it means. But the first seven seals represent or, 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 or point out the tyrannies that every generation faces. But despite these tyrannies, all is well in heaven 
and there's an unbelievably large number of people who are on God's side, which takes us now to chapter 8 to 11, four chapters where the seven trumpets are the main focus. And these seven trumpets, as they are blared, reveal just the general chaos of life. Throughout history, life has just turned chaotic for a number of different reasons. And so we've got these sensational locusts that represent environmental chaos. And we find these militaries. And in the middle of these locusts, by the way, you've got more horses that are riding and these, you know, supernatural militaries of epic, monstrous, evil proportions. But underlying it all is that they all create this chaos on earth. And once again, our, our, our picture turns to chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, where despite all of this chaos and despite all of the world's instability through these chaotic situations, mankind still refuses to repent. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. See, this is the sad picture that keeps emerging when these sensational, you know, epic spiritual realities are at work behind the scenes in earthly chaos, it still doesn't seem to bring people to the right place. Chapter 10 even reveals that, you know, God's word is going out. So this imagery of the scrolls and swallowing the scrolls, it's bittersweet and these prophets are being killed and the church itself is being defeated. So in the middle of this chaos, right, what, you know, is the good news. Chapter 11, verse 15 to 19. We give thanks to you, O God, our Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see, the picture is, once again, despite the chaos of environmental chaos and militaries of epic, monstrous, evil proportions, all is well, is, all is well in heaven, and there is a following on earth. And the point that's being made here is that in the middle of all of this chaos on earth, the real ruler is ruling. The real ruler has begun to rule, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the appointed ruler of all creation. He is the only one who is in charge, and everyone is subject to his coming kingdom. It is already, but it's also not yet, which is a very important theme to pick up on from chapter 8 to 11, is when we turn to the good news of the heavenly reality being stable, we get the very clear picture that, yes, God is ruling right now, but he has not brought an end or he has not brought a final judgment to the world yet. Already, 
not yet. Both are absolutely true. Jesus Christ is the ruler. As we said in the beginning, the biblical perspective always is that God does let humanity get its way, but it won't get its way forever. There will be an end to the nonsense. It is very much a part of, of Jesus' own teaching that his death and resurrection make him the true place of safety and salvation from the chaos of this world. And he is the ruler that will, that will right all the wrongs. He is the judge. But right now, God is still allowing the chaos of this world to continue, which takes us to chapter 12 to 14, the seven signs and persecution. So these seven signs all have a similar backdrop to them, and that is persecution. Persecution happens in every generation. Somewhere on earth, persecution is a reality. Governments, institutions of men, simply do not like the independent nature that God gives to his people. Governments and institutions want total control. And that's what chapter 12 to 14 is all about. These governments and institutions want absolute control. And these are human governments and human institutions. But anyhow, the main characters that jump out at us in chapter 12 to 14 are the woman who represents Israel. The woman has a son who represents Jesus Christ. And there's a dragon. Of course, that represents Satan and evil at large. And there's also a wilderness that features into the characterizations, you know, of the spiritual reality. And that wilderness offers somewhat of a protection, and that is the church. So with that said, there are two beasts that emerge from the earth and the sea, and they have the same characteristic. They're persecutors. They are the governments and institutions that do wondrous signs present themselves as being the loving rulers of this earth, present themselves as having your best interest in mind, present themselves this way, but yet demand absolute obedience and loyalty. And so here's where the famous number 666 emerges. Once again, though, it's a representative thing. Governments and institutions will have their little signs that you must take on to show your loyalty. This has been common throughout history. This is what human beings do to other human beings. They demand some sort of sign or some sort of, of, of um, show that you are loyal because they expect absolute obedience and loyalty. And these two beasts and these, you know, these institutions and governments that they represent are completely unrepentant and they're absolutely obnoxious. When you read about it, that's the impression that you get. But chapter 14 stands as a, as a countermeasure once again that in the middle of persecution that is taking place by human governments and human institutions represented by these beasts. And even though it seems like there is, is you know, that God's plan is being thwarted. No, no. 
chapter 14, verse 1 to 20. I grabbed a little, little line out of there, but read the whole thing. Then I looked, and behold, Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, which is a contrast to taking on the sign of the beast is that there are people who have their father's name written on their foreheads. Literally, like, should you go write God the Father on your forehead? No, it's meant to say that God takes care of your reputation. God, in the face of, of these governments and institutions that demand absolute loyalty, God has his own sign and God will take care of his own sign. People, you know, and so the picture here is, is that God has his own people with his name written on their foreheads, which is just the language of there are people who clearly represent God with no embarrassment whatsoever. And it goes on. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The picture here is on earth persecution. That's what you can expect. And that's what's been going on for the last 2,000 years and will continue to go on for as long as it takes for Jesus to come back. But the picture that emerges here is that all is well on the heavenly side of things. And once again, that unimaginably large number have their father's name written on their foreheads, which means the gospel is being proclaimed to all the peoples of all the tribes of the world, even while persecution is happening. Nothing could be more telling of the truthfulness of Christianity than the fact that Christianity is so often, so often persecuted, persecuted today in American culture, persecuted yesteryear in Roman culture, persecuted in China, persecuted everywhere. Persecution is the wide angle lens that is being focused on here in the spiritual reality with these you know two beasts and all that's going on. there's a spiritual reality going on but the simple message is repent and repentance is being proclaimed and people are responding to the message of repentance even in the face of persecution you see persecution oftentimes grows the church more than not not persecution you know, or having no persecution and God is gathering a harvest so chapter 14 also makes it clear that God is gathering up a harvest a harvest of people who are his he knows who they are and he has his name written on your forehead and then lastly is 15 to 16 which are the seven bowls and destruction and and basically you know, we see disease in these bowls, disease, pollution, corruption, drought, evil is spreading. God, though, intervenes and offers hope. Um, and, and most people, though, refuse to repent. Chapter 16, verse 9, they were scorched by fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had the power of over these plagues, but they did not repent and give him glory. You see, once again, the sad reality is that in the face of disease, pollution, corruption, drought, whatever, evil spreading, 
it still doesn't make people repent. But there is always good news available, and that's what chapter 15, verse 1 to 8 is all about. They sing the song of Moses. The song of Moses is being sung. The song of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, is being sung. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the importance of chapter 15 is in the middle of destruction of disease, pollution, corruption, drought. Once again, the good news is available. All is well in heaven. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are on the lips of people proclaiming God's victory over evil, even as everything is being destroyed. Now, when chapter 16 ends, it is the world's end as we know it. That's why the good news actually came before. John's going to let the, you know, the world end at the end of chapter 16. And then chapter 17 to 20 will be a replay of how the end of evil all comes down. Okay, so that's that though. All is well in heaven and there's our four scenes. Now, Let's put it all together. The big message in this for every generation, not some generation, is not get your decoder ring on and try to figure this out. No, it's here the message, the big message, which is the end is not yet. You are going to see tyranny. You're going to see chaos. You're going to see destruction. You're going to see these things. Don't be put off. Don't be dismayed. Don't be led away. The end is not yet. God has not put the end in play. So it will be though. It's not the end until it is. And if Jesus said that we wouldn't know when, don't expect the faithful witness of John the Revelator to tell you anything different. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 24. You don't know when. Nobody knows when. He's, even from an earthly point of view, Jesus said, I don't know when. So nothing new emerges in the chapters of 6 to 16. It's a huge visual spiritual odyssey that takes four different perspectives of the, the nastiness of this life from a spiritual perspective behind the scenes. But all of this has been said by Jesus already. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about tyranny, chaos, persecution, and destruction, but the gospel needing proclaimed. If I just flipped over to Matthew 24, let me just read a couple little bits. See that no one leads you astray, Jesus says. This was when he was alive with his disciples. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All 6 to 16 is is an elaboration of the spiritual reality, giving us all this fun language so that we can cope in difficult times with what we see. We're tempted to say, is God in charge? This section makes it very clear. Yes, he is in charge. He has given humanity even more time 
to repent because that's how God is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection are the conquering mechanism that God has for the evils of this world, past, present, and future. Live like you know the ending is ultimately the message being sent here. It's, it's meant to give you the ending. It's meant to give you that stability of knowing that despite the tyranny, despite the chaos, despite the persecution, despite the destruction that might happen, you're in the right place. Don't play games. Live life as a conqueror, knowing the end. This was four different episodes to show you that God wins. Revelation gives us that language that language so that we can take a deep breath in the middle of this world's chaotic, unjust, destructive, persecuting tyrannies and say, well, let's go, Brandon, you know, to an ungodly and evil world around us. God is on your side, not on the world's side. That is the message. And, and, and honestly, just simply saying, let's go, Jesus, is the ultimate put down to this world's craziness because God is on your side, on Jesus' side, not on this world's side. This world may think that it's winning, but it's losing. If it has not repented and will not repent, it will be the loser. God is gracious and kind and patient, and long-suffering. And so we need to hear that message. When the chaos and the persecution um, and the tyranny and the destruction starts happening around us, we need to smile and know that we're on the right side. God knows right where we are. We are His. And we need to build our confidence in that. And Revelation chapter 6 to 16 is doing nothing more than building your confidence in the fact that all of this world's craziness still does not jeopardize the winner who is God and you being a winner with God. All right, there we go. We're going to end our time right there. We have chapter 17 to 20 coming up, and then we have chapter 21 to 22. Do your reading with this little help in mind, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.